Thank you, Jessica. How many times have I said that as you've walked by? I think there's a sign-up sheet if anybody else wants to do offering. Bless her heart, she seems willing to do it whenever there's an empty slot. So we are very blessed to have her little servant's heart. Well, I I hope you came prepared for God's Word. Uh, Sunday after Sunday, we crack it open. It's God's holy Word. It's inspired. It's powerful. It changes hearts. It encourages. It brings conviction. And when we closed chapter 6, we closed it with the knowledge of those that have denied Christ. And in chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel, which is where we will be today, Matthew's Gospel, We saw Jesus denied. We saw the Jewish rulers deny Jesus' lordship. And then we saw Peter deny that he ever even knew Jesus to begin with. And so we close that chapter with Jesus being denied by his enemies, but also by his friends. Denied by even a person that swore on his very life that he would not deny Christ. Even if everybody else in the world did. And yet Peter denied Christ. Chapter 26 and especially chapter 27, and this will be just part one this morning of a little little series. Matthew takes us into the pit of hell in the sense of exposing us to the evil that takes place in this world and the evil that takes place in the heart of man. What we see right now, this morning, we'll see the evil on the, the effect of evil on Judas's soul. And then next week and the week after, we'll, we just continue to see it grow and grow and grow. And we will see man perhaps at his lowest In chapter 27, before we break forth in the victory of the resurrection in chapter 8. This morning, I just want to tackle the first 10 verses and zero in or focus in on a Judas and his struggle in life. So let's look at Matthew chapter 27, the first 10 verses. When morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful. To put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a barrier place, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. 
And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Fulfillment of prophecy. We have in this passage a suicide. Suicide is never a pleasant topic to talk about, but the Bible is reality. And so as reality, it doesn't skip over the hard parts of life. It doesn't skip over the struggles that people have. And so it it reveals really what I would call the effects of evil on a person's heart. And that would be Judas, a reality of life. I think in Judas's life, we see the promise of sin unfulfilled. You know, sin, that thing that offers to us the solution to our problems. And it's always wrong and it's always destructive. And sin offered to Judas at one time to resolve this desire that he had, this point in his life. And he concluded with the help of sin that what he needed in his life was to use Jesus, to sell Jesus out because he needed money. Jesus let him down, disappointed him in whatever way, whatever dynamic was going on in his mind. But he came to the conclusion that what he needed was silver. Silver will get him where he needs to be. That option, that evil or wickedness offered him, as it so often does, resulted in tremendous torment of his soul. An unbearable agony that he now is experiencing because of sin. And now sin brings him to this place of suicide. Now it offers him this option. Here's now, the money didn't work, here's now the solution or the remedy that needs to take place that will satisfy your soul and take you where you want to be. Suicide was not at all as common in Judas's day among the Jewish culture as it is in our day. Now listen to some of these staggering uh, statistics. It is the second leading cause of death among individuals from age 10 to 34. The second. So of the things that take people's lives in this age group, first you have uh, accidental injury. We hear about the tragedy of accidents um, taking lives all the time. But just under that is suicide. And then under that is homicide, where people's lives are taken from them. And they're all tragic. Now, if you, if you take a statistic from the general population, people from all ages, it ranks number 10, suicide as a cause of death. And, of course, the older we get, the the least likely we are uh, to commit suicide. And the more likely we are to die of old age or other causes. And so we live in a world, we live in a dangerous world. And as you know, we have to look out for things because there are things that will kill us. And so we find ourselves looking out for our own health, trying to eat healthy, trying to keep the numbers and the figures down and so forth, because there's a lot of things out there we're we're fighting against. We have to be careful. We also want to keep ourselves safe by not going to certain places that we know might be sketchy, might get hurt if we go into this part of the town or drive in this place. And so we're we're, we're protecting ourselves in this way. 
And now we live in a world where our own hearts will come after us. Our own hearts in some of our lives aren't safe. And that is becoming more and more common. Who would have ever thought that an enemy to bring danger or to end our lives would actually come from our own voice and our own reason? Well, why does this happen? How do people come to this place? Well, there's a lot of different theories out there and and figures, but I just want to simplify it down to psychologists will mention and pretty much any book you read on it will mention generally five causes or five reasons why someone would get to a place where they would actually follow through with taking their lives. The first is retaliation. Some people in an effort, they've been deeply, deeply hurt. Something has happened in their lives and in an effort to lash out, in an effort, they conclude that the best way I can be I can hurt this people or this group of people that have hurt me so deeply. I want to hurt them deeply. And so they take their lives as retaliation to inflict maximum punishment and misery on those that have inflicted misery on them. And of course, it works. It works if if you hear or if you're a partner of a loved one has committed suicide. It has the tendency to eat away at us. It's a difficult thing to recover from. And then another reason that people would end their lives is reunion. Some people kill themselves in the hope and they don't always have the answer. And this is just generic, not just Christians, but they don't always know what's on the other side. But they in their mind, they come to the conclusion that I want to be reunited with the person that I love and miss so much. And so I'm just going to end my life in the hope that I will wind up where they are because it's just too unbearable for me to continue to live in this world without them. So we have retaliation and reunion. And then in some cultures and in some people's minds, rebirth in an effort. Uh, If you believe in reincarnation, some people might kill themselves in the hope that I'll come back as something different this time and life will be better. Or others don't know what's on the other side, but they just think, well, it's hopeless here. So whatever, I hope there's something on the other side and that it will bring me into some kind of new life and rebirth. Now, a fourth one, and I almost skipped this, but it was on the list and it's called retroflux. And I won't spend much time on it, but it's a retro is a is a backwards literally means backwards. So it's a backwards way of thinking. And some people are so angry that people that actually deserve to be put to death, escape it or don't come to that conclusion that they put themselves to death just out of frustration and anger. And then lastly, perhaps the most common is retribution. Retribution. Someone may have sinned or imagine that they have sinned and it is a a way to punish themselves. It's a way to punish themselves for what they did or didn't they didn't do something absolutely terrible to them, whether it's real. Sometimes it's imagined, sometimes it's imposed guilt, but it's a tremendous agonizing guilt. And it's their conclusion to escape the agony of this guilt. 
that bears down and tears away at them. So as a way to inflict personal punishment based on what they did and the effect that it is having on them, they will end their lives. They deem themselves that whatever they did or it's, it's too terrible. I no longer deserve to live. I don't have the worth. And so the best thing for me to do is to kill myself. So five general reasons why people come to these conclusions. And when you read Scripture, you never find in Holy Scripture that suicide is a viable remedy or a viable way to bring you where you want to be. As a matter of fact, it is a sin. It's just a sin on top of the miseries that may have brought us to a place where we would contemplate ending our lives. It's viewed as an act of something that is actually uh, under the influence of evil to be thinking along these lines of not uh, that my life is so lowly that I've done something so wrong that I have no worth that I don't even deserve to live. Therefore, I will end my own life. The Bible paints that as that kind of thinking is being influenced by darkness and evil. And it's a sin because it's a person, it's a mind that was created for the glory of God and is not trusting that maybe tomorrow the sun will come out. It's not trusting in a God of hope, but in actuality is breaking the sixth command of thou shalt not commit murder because we take the power of death in our own hands and God is the giver of life and God is the giver of death. But retaliation or retribution is sometimes an answer to a person's guilt. Now, if that's the case, then we certainly can understand perhaps what Judas was thinking about at this point in his life. I mean, he betrayed a friend. He was close. They were close. He was one of the twelve, right? He watched Jesus closely. They shared meals together. They patted each other on the back. They hugged each other, probably cried and laughed together. And he betrayed his friend. And he's he's dealing with this. He's probably thinking of the, the memories and the times they had. And then on top of that, it wasn't just a friend. But now he's realizing that Jesus was innocent. He wasn't just a friend that was kind of a good friend and you know, messed up sometimes and deserved a little bit of this. No, he was innocent. And all of this is falling on Judas now. And he's coming to the realization of the, the, the evil that his hands have committed. And he wants to be free. He wants to be free from the agony and the burden. He doesn't want to carry it any longer. It's too much. It's dragging him down. He just wants out whatever it takes. And there's that lie under the influence of evil that suicide is our ticket to freedom from the misery that we live in. It's an act of self-destruction. If you think about it, when you get to this point, really, how will you free yourself from such thing? I think you, we basically have two options. We can face what we've done and we can go to the person and say, I don't deserve this one bit and what I've done is terrible, but would you forgive me? I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for grace. And if we don't do that and we're still under the burden of sin, 
then we'll have to get freedom another way. And some people conclude the way I can get freedom is self-destruction. It's interesting to me that Matthew would even spend any time on this. This is this is gloomy, but he's in the middle of explaining the passion of Christ. He's following Jesus step by step as he makes his way to the cross. This is the linchpin of the world. And he takes a few verses, I think, just to show us the course and the end that evil took in Judas's life. It's interesting to me that he would spend or use ink so to speak, to even inform us. Why include this? Well, I think it's gloomy. And it teaches us the effect that sin can have us when, on us when we give ourselves to it. This is one way it can, play, it can play out, and this is how it played out in Judas's life. Though it may be an extreme example. He didn't have anywhere to take it. So he takes it to the tree. And that's what guilt does to us. If we don't know where to take it, guilt's a real thing. We all deal with it. If we don't know where, to ta- we, where we're going to take it, how do we get free from it? It can eat away at us and eat away at us and begin to twist our mind and twist our thinking. Judas chose not to take it to that place of forgiveness, not to ask for grace or mercy but to take it upon himself. Grace or guilt without the cross brought him to the end of a rope. That's what Matthew tells us, and it's true. And as if that wasn't gloomy or dismal enough, Peter tells us in Acts 1.18 that while he was hanging, he falls headlong, he bashes his head open, and his bowels fall out. Of his body. They, they gush out. So Matthew really shows us the gruesomeness, the grossness, the ugliness of this. Either the rope broke and there he goes crashing down onto the rocks. Or he, let, he hung there long enough to where his body shrunk and decomposed and slipped out from the noose or something. Either way, it's just yuck. That was his life. Without forgiveness. Without Christ, the path of evil is dark, it's gruesome, it's scary, it's gross. Matthew gives us some details, so I just want to back up a little bit and let's examine how this actually happened. How Judas found himself with a rope around his neck. Verse 3, he sees the consequences of his betrayal. So he has... Stayed close after he betrayed Jesus. He stayed close enough to be in the know. Either he's getting firsthand reports from somebody or actually he's in the crowd somewhere. And he's seeing how things are going down. And he's seeing the false accusations. And he is seeing that the Jewish leaders are already set on killing Jesus. There's no fair trial here. Their minds are made up. They're just going through the motions. And it's very possible that he's either hearing about, but more likely he's seeing with his own eyes what they're doing to Jesus. And they're not kind to Jesus. They don't just bind him, and we'll look at this next time, but they beat him badly. They mock him, they spit on him, they ridicule him. They knock him as low as you can knock a person. And he's seeing all this, and it's it's having an effect on his body. It's making him feel, I did this. 
I turned him in. I accused, I pointed him out. And is eating away at him. But So what he wants to do, he cannot bear himself anymore. And so he comes to the conclusion, I've got to back my steps up. I've got to undo what I have said in motion. I can't, I can't take it. And so he's got the silver and he thinks I've got to get rid of the silver. I've got to go back and make my confession. I, I told what I told the priest was wrong. And this money that he thought was the answer to his problems or whatever he thought about now, it's burning a hole in his hands. He, he doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. It says he has a change of heart. Verse 3. The ASV uses the word repentance. It's not a good choice of words. There are different Greek words used met. Metanoia is the prominent New Testament word for repentance that actually changes one's heart. Then there's another word similar to it that points uh, strictly to somebody who's just feeling terrible. They have shame. They have um, remorse. Metamelamai is that word. Sorrow describes regret. It describes feelings. That's what Judas is experiencing. He's not turning to Jesus. He's not turning to God here. He's turning inward. He's accountable to his own sin. His conscience is crippling him. And his soul cannot bear it. Now that's the conclusion. Now notice here he's not turning to God. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't come to God like so many people in the Bible that have gravely sinned and said, God has sinned against you and you only. He's not the only person that has committed a heinous sin. Think about David. He commits adultery and then has Bathsheba's husband killed, who's this faithful warrior to his army. How low is that? He takes it. to He can't bear it either. He takes it to God. So Judas is not fearing God in here. He just wants to escape his own feelings. He doesn't fear man either. He's willing to go back to the priest. He doesn't make excuses. He says, what I did was wrong. He's not trying to hide it. He's not thinking, oh my goodness, what will people think about me? It'll ruin my reputation. He's over that. So then what's eating at him if he's not fearing God and he's not fearing man? What's eating at him but his own conscience, his own sense of justice? He is weighing his soul and his worth on his own scale and falling way short. He cannot live with himself based on his own assessment. It wasn't so long ago that Jesus said to Judas something that he said to no other man. And that is when they were around the table instituting the Lord's Supper. Satan entered into him. He said, one of you is the devil. So if there's any question about what is really taking place in Judas's heart, Jesus makes it clear. This is an evil act. This is evil or Satan, if you will, offering his hand to Judas and Judas takes it. And he has just walked down that path of darkness. Decision after decision. And this is where it has led him in his heart. conscience our conscience that plagues us 
that sometimes really does make life unbearable is a gift from God. It's that bell that goes off in our inner person, in our inner man. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't say that. You know you're not supposed to do that. And it is to be a deterrent or a repellent, if you will, from us doing evil. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. Now, it can condemn us, which is also a good thing. We need to know what to do with it. By the way, we are living in a culture right now that wants to kill the conscience in certain situations under certain behaviors. Not everything. We still want things to be wrong and we want society to feel guilty about it. But other things that society used to feel guilty about or things that we should feel guilty about, according to God's word, our culture is trying to lessen that. They don't feel guilty about that. We're trying to kill part of our conscience. And some people take that pretty far. I think that our conscience is embedded so deep in humanity, we will never get rid of it completely. Now, there are those that have what the Bible calls a seared conscience. Where you just said, you just said no to it so many times, it becomes a habit. And the feeling and the sensation is not near as intense as it was. There is a remorse and a feeling that leads to repentance. And there are feelings that just stay miserable and do not lead us to repentance. Corinthians tells us that. So what should we do with these, with our conscience smitten? We should take it to the cross. We should take it to God because he offers relief from this very thing. That's why Christ came into the world. And Hebrews tells us that he can even cleanse our conscience. What an amazing thing. So this emotional sorrow did not lead Judas to repentance. But boy, is he regretful. And he's trying to back his steps up and undo it. So he goes back to the priest and he says, I don't even want this money anymore. What I have, he literally says, I have sinned. And it's amazing right here. The clarity that Judas has about his own sin. He's so steeped in evil and yet he's thinking clearer than most of us. Because what do we often do when we're in sin? We justify it. That's a fruit of sin. It wasn't that bad. I feel kind of bad. I got to give it half of this back. Or it wasn't really all my fault. I mean, let me point out a few other people that did some things. We don't find any of that. That's usually what sin does. He is thinking very clearly. And he feels all of the weight of the guilt that is bearing down on him. This great confession that he makes. And not only does he confess that he has sinned, but he confesses Jesus is innocent. He cannot find a single justification for why Jesus would deserve any of this. Now, what does that speak to the character of our Lord? Even when sin is present in its fullness, cannot even find a legitimate accusation of any shade or form against Christ. And if it was there, sin would find it. What you do, by the way, according to Jewish law, They had their own system. They have courts just like we do. If you bear false testimony in court today, you're you're in trouble. 
If you bear false testimony in court in that day, you're in trouble. And they had this this law that said, if you testify against a person and that they did a certain thing and you're lying and we find out about it, the the indictment or the punishment that they would have to endure, you have to endure. That's a serious thing. You just don't make false accusations. And so it's very possible understanding the Jewish law and the culture that Judas is coming back to them. He's making a confession. Wait a minute. I sinned. I lied. Jesus is innocent. I'm the one that deserves to be dying. I'm the one that deserves to be beaten. Whatever it is that you're doing to him. See, he is so eaten up with guilt. He, he, he wants out of it any way he can. And so he'll go to the court and make this confession and take the punishment if that will bring him relief. And how sad it is that they did not even follow that at all. How sad it is that the shepherds of Israel. Here comes this man whose soul he is tormented. He is tearing away at his insides. And if anybody needs soothing and mercy and compassion and be pointed to God, it's Judas. And they say, in essence, I could care less about you, what you're experiencing. And by the way, they didn't. And when um, when new evidence is introduced to a trial, in other words, uh, sorry, judge, but I lied about that whole thing. Well, they're supposed to retry it with the new evidence. They didn't do that. We're going to see how evil they can be. This is Judas's turn. Well, Judas, he wants to give him back the money and they won't even take that. And so what he does is he casts it down. He's mad. He's angry. They're not giving him anything. They're not soothing his pain in any kind of way. And so he takes the money, it says, he casts it down. And this is with defiance. And he does what with it? He doesn't throw it at their feet. He throws it into the temple. And this is interesting. It's very possible with the words that they've used here. That word for temple isn't just the, the outer court, it's the inner court. It's not just the inner court, it's the holy of holies. And so he's meeting with them, not in the holy of holies, but outside the holy of holies or close enough to it. And in essence, it's an act of defiance to say, okay, so you won't touch it because it's blood money? Let's see about that. And he throws it into the Holy of Holies. Now, who alone can go into the Holy of Holies? Only those high priests. So he says, oh, you don't want to touch it? You're going to touch it. Defiance. And so now we know what was going on in his heart, what was going on in his mind that led him to the despair of a rope. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 21, 22. You've heard this. We hear this verse quoted every Easter. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And that was part of the Jewish law. Is it any accident that Judas chose this form of suicide. It communicates that Judas sees himself after the priests gave him no relief. Giving back the money gave him no relief. He didn't go to God. Where else is he going to go? He has not only seen himself 
or judged himself as unworthy to live. But now he sees himself as cursed. I cannot get out from under this sin. I am a cursed man. Everywhere I go, it goes with me. And he dies the death of one that is cursed. He could have gone to Christ. It's interesting also that he spent the same amount of time with the other disciples. Now, he watched Jesus in action. He heard all the teachings with his own ears that you can only hear with your voice or my voice. As you read these, he heard it. He watched this compassionate man go to people that nobody else wanted anything to do with. He watched him heal diseases. He watched him teach in such a way about the kingdom that it brought people hope. He fed the hungry. He watched him exercise evil out of individuals that nobody else could do. And no doubt he watched Jesus forgive sin. Take the burden, the unbearable burden of sin and the results from it away from people. And yet, he did not conclude that he could take his burden to Jesus. Isn't it amazing that people can be exposed to the same thing, the same witness, the same miracles, hear the same truths, maybe even get goosebumps over the spiritualness of, uh, that's being that's taking place, and yet come to wrong conclusion, take the same thing and come to a wrong conclusion. Bad theology results in bad anthropology. In other words, if we don't think rightly about God, we will not think rightly about ourselves. And this is a perfect example. Though he was exposed to it, he did not see Jesus as a way of salvation, a way out from under this, as a hope in his life. And he knew the Bible. He's not the only one that took the path of evil. How sad it is. And to watch his mind destroy itself with wrong conclusion after wrong conclusion after wrong conclusion to finally say the best way out is for me to end my life. And if that isn't sad enough, what makes it even sadder is that he is wrong in a desperate attempt to rid himself and find relief from the guilt of what he had did, what he did in life did not answer. It didn't satisfy. It only made permanent the misery that he experienced in this world because he did not turn to God. He never asked forgiveness. And we know what happens when our sins are not taken to the cross. What a picture of tragedy. His heart condemned him. And he killed himself to get relief from that, only to find himself stuck in it in probably even more severe ways that Jesus calls hell. He was tormented here and now he will live forever in that place of torment. And yet scripture says, the other disciples heard it and John writes it in 1 John three nineteen through 20. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth. And reassure our heart before him. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. If he just would have known that one truth. 
the ending would have been completely different. When we have a wrong theology, we're going to have a, a bad anthropology. We're going to think wrongly about ourselves and draw wrong conclusions. Of course, the opposite true is true as well. When we understand God, then we know as believers that no matter how our hearts condemn us, Christ paid for that sin. He alone can cleanse it. The enemy offers suicide as a relief and a way of freedom, and it's a lie. The only how can man get rid of the guilt that's real and true? There's only one way. You carry it to hell or you bring it to the cross of grace. It's undeserved. It's an act of grace, mercy on God's part. But he will take that burden from us that we can't live under. And then graciously and lovingly cover us with the righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at us, there is no condemnation. That's the good news of the gospel that Judas So we want to be careful with our thoughts. We want to make sure we know God well so that we know ourselves well. And we, according to Scripture, even need to protect ourselves against our own hearts. And that should be no secret, knowing that we're born with a sinful nature. So that's Judas. Now, I want to just venture briefly into the life of the priest just to give you an idea of the evil that is in store. Talk about drawing wrong conclusions And twisted thinking. We already know. That they are incurable hypocrites. They go to great extremes. To look perfectly holy and righteous on the outside. Jesus has already said. The inside is rotten. It's like a tomb. It's like a tomb. You can paint the outside. And make it look good. And and put flowers around it. But in the inside. It's rotting flesh. It's just death. So the chief priests won't go into detail, but everything they did with Jesus was unlawful. They took him by night. They didn't really have a real trial. They're supposed to be in the daytime. Just to go through the motions, we'll learn that as soon as it got daylight, that's when they made their pronouncement because they're not supposed to have a trial at night. Anyway, everything they did was they're just breaking one law after another. But here's where... I think it it really hits home, not to mention the fact that they dissed Judas and he comes to them with a bleeding heart. Could care less. Here's where I think hypocrisy is just absolutely incredible. Judas takes the money, he throws it into the temple. Now, they have a conundrum. What do you do with this money? By their own confession, it's blood money, which means they recognize that these coins were used to pay off a man to condemn an innocent man to death. That's what blood money is. So by their own admission. What do they do with it? Well, they put their heads together. Their hypocritical thinking came together and they come out with this great idea. Well, we can't break the law. We can't put it back into the offering plate. That'd be wrong. Because it's blood money. Now, where did the money come from? Yeah, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, when he examines these texts and goes back, he said the, the, they got the 30 pieces of um, silver from the treasury. 
But now that it's not innocent, now that Judas touched it, they can't put it back into the treasury because it's blood money. They don't want to break the law with that silver. So what they do is they come out with this great idea. Since they can't put it back in the treasury, well, we want to use it for God's glory. So they buy a field, a potter's field. A potter's field, of course, a potter does what but makes things out of clay. So they scrape the clay off of the field to make their things. So usually a potter's field is pretty worthless by the time a potter's finished with it because the clay's been scraped off. It's kind of been demolished to a sense. So you can get it for pretty cheap, but they do this and they decide that they're going to use it as a burial place for the unclean that happen to come to the city and die while they're there. So it's a charitable thing. Look, they got to have some place to bury them. We don't really want to touch them. They're unclean. They're Gentiles. Let's buy this worthless field and we'll bury them over there. The audacity. Look, look at evil. We saw it in Judas, but look at it in the mind of a hypocrite who wants to be righteous. And on the outside, we can't use this blood money that we've already used to condemn an innocent man. I mean, they paid it to him. But we can't break the law. We need to pray against hypocrisy in our hearts because it is a powerful thing to want to stay looking good on the outside and yet to just let all this rancid evil run around in our hearts. Have all these double standards. That's a real thing. And it's a real struggle. The field of blood. They didn't call it the potter's field. 30 years, approximately 30 years after this happened, what was the general populace calling that field? This is Matthew's Gospel. That's when it was written. It's known as the field of blood. So everybody knew what happened. They didn't call it the potter's field. Oh, that's the field where an innocent man was put to death and this is what they had to do with the money. So I close with this. We want to make sure that we know where we can take our guilt, where we can take our shame because we have it. It's all over us. And I want to encourage you to bring it to the cross of grace. Because only God can cleanse us from guilt. Killing ourselves won't do it. Self-destruction, cutting ourselves, hurting ourselves as a way of relief from guilt. It does not get rid of guilt. Only Jesus Christ can get rid of our guilt. And He does that when we go to Him and trust Him to forgive us because we've asked for mercy and we believe in His sacrificial death, the death of an innocent man. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.